0: Welcome to the Beatrice Institute podcast. I'm your host, Ryan McDermott. I'm a professor of English at the University of Pittsburgh and faculty director of the Beatrice Institute, an ecumenical learning and research community that supports advanced inquiry in the Christian intellectual and cultural traditions. Animated by intellectual friendship, inside and outside the academy, Beatrice Institute serves all who pursue the beautiful, the true, and the good.
1: I'm here with Mark Reef, uh, one of the more interesting and, dare I say, productive philosophers around. He completed his JD at Georgetown and his PhD at Cambridge, and since then has written five books, including, just this April, In the Name of Liberty, the Argument for Universal Unionization. He's also taught political, legal, and moral philosophy at the University of Manchester, the University of Durham, and most recently at the University of California at Davis, and in 2008 to 2009 was a faculty fellow at the Safra Center for Ethics at Harvard University. Mark, thank you so much for joining us today. Well, thanks for having me, John. I really appreciate it. Uh, Now, in addition to your work as a scholar, uh, you're also a lawyer. Uh, Could you speak to how your legal experience influences your philosophical work?
2: Right. Well, I'd like to say I'm a recovering lawyer because I I didn't enjoy practicing law very much. But I I do think that my experience in practice has been invaluable to what I do now. I can't imagine that I could write about the things I write about now and be able to talk about different aspects of them, not only the philosophical, but the legal uh, and the the political without having that experience as a lawyer. Because as a lawyer, I mostly represented people in financial uh, disputes. And since what I do now is write a lot about economic justice, that gave me a really deep understanding of, of a lot of the details of how the businesses work and so where the places are that things can go wrong and people can get exploited. So I think that's, that's really invaluable. And it also enables me to, I think, really connect every, all the theoretical stuff I'm talking about to actual practical problems. I really like to make those connections as clear as possible and having some experience in the business world, I think ha- helps me to do that. So even though I don't, I didn't enjoy being a lawyer, I think it was really an important part of, of my education and just learning how the world works so that I can do what I do now.
1: Yeah. And now of course, uh, you have the advantage of having moving, moving up in the world, right? Uh, cause nobody, nobody makes jokes about, uh, hundred moral philosophers at the bottom of the sea. That's right. At least not yet. But who knows?
2: (laughs) We'll give it time. We've got time yet. (laughs) Uh,
1: Now, let's get to your book, because I'm really excited about it. Uh, Your book, In the Name of Liberty, The Argument for Universal Unionization. It's new this year. Uh, Why unionization and why now? Right. Well, uh, as I'm sure you're aware, unionization rates have been declining
2: rapidly, uh, most rapidly in the United States, but really all over the world. Uh, with few exceptions. And they've they've gone down from their high, say we're talking about the uh, United States, from about uh, 33% in 1953 to uh, just around 10% now. So that's a very dramatic drop. And if you look at what also has been happening in economic justice, you see a striking parallel between the drop in unionization, the uh, rise in economic inequality the uh, rise in wages for the top one percent, the switch of uh, of the kinds of employments that people can get now from good permanent jobs, paying high wages with benefits to very temporary jobs that pay low wages and have no benefits. All the economic manifestations of the crisis in economic justice now parallel the drop in unions. And there are a lot of studies that show there's there's a It's not just a correlation here, but there's a causal influence. I think the Economic Policy Institute thinks about a third of these changes can be explained by the drop in unionization. So I think it's a critically important issue, but surprisingly, it's one that political philosophers have paid almost no attention to, at least non-Marxists. Uh, and Marxists have a whole, whole different conception of unions, so that in, in a sense they don't really count for this. While political philosophers write a lot about economic inequality and they think that's their that's their lane, right? They don't say much about unions. They don't say much about unemployment. Yet I don't see why those areas should be just ceded to so-called specialists like uh, economists and labor relations people. Those, ish, those areas all involve issues of political morality. So I thought it was really something that a political philosopher needed to address. And so uh, that was kind of the driving idea behind the book.
1: Yeah. Well, not only are you addressing a topic that is uh, maybe under, under-examined, uh, you also uh, start in an unusual place, right? You begin by envisioning a libertarian paradise, uh, but it's unlike any libertarian paradise most of us have encountered. Uh, so what is a libertarian paradise? Well, so
2: the reason to focus on liberty, let me just introduce this idea a bit, is that one of, my, one of my sort of worries that I've expressed in all of my books is that the left now tends to rely on the argument from equality for arguing for economic justice, whereas the right tends to rely on the argument from liberty Essentially saying, uh, well, no matter what equality requires, if it's an interference with liberty, you can't do it. And the left tends to respond just by, you know, doubling down on the argument for equality. So what I've been trying to do is reclaim the argument from liberty for the left uh, to show that the right wing version is actually just wrong. It, It is not an accurate description of what liberty requires. And that if you if you reconceive of liberty, um, you can see that in a sense, it leads to the same place as the argument for equality, but isn't subject to the same defenses. So that was the idea. And so and of course, when we go to unionization, the specific issue, the most successful argument against unionization has been phrased as an argument from liberty. So I really wanted to take that on. And so the idea was that I would start with the thought experiment that Robert Nozick uses in his very famous book called um, Anarchy, State, and Utopia. Uh, That book's been one of the most influential books of political philosophy in the 20th century. It really defines libertarianism, or what I'm going to call right libertarianism. And uh, I think nobody writing about liberty or libertarianism today can do so without acknowledging that book and sort of addressing its concerns. And as you remember, the book starts with this hypothetical thought experiment. What Nozick wants to do is he wants to show that we can arrive at something that looks like the modern state, and it could arise without violating what he thinks of as libertarian rights. Because if that's not true, if we couldn't have something that looked like the minimal state, without violating libertarian rights, then libertarianism wouldn't really be a political theory. It would simply be anarchism, right? Because it would show that nothing can justly exist. So he wants to distinguish it from anarchism by showing that, yes, indeed, we could have something that looks like a modern state arising without violating uh, libertarian rights. And he goes through a very fascinating, thorough, engaging description of how that would happen essentially. How it would happen that by essentially voluntary consent, we have something that looks a lot like the state. And so what I thought I would start with is take that same thought experiment, the same libertarian utopia that Nozick describes, and ask another question of it. Ask the question of, well, would there be unions arising in this libertarian utopia? And so I use his structure, and I I use the same arguments he makes to show that we could have something like the minimum state to show that in fact, unions would arise in a libertarian utopian. In fact, everybody would be unionized. And so that's the sort of strategic idea behind that and why I start with the idea of a libertarian utopia. Even though there is no such thing as a libertarian utopia, But the argument on the right is that we're all libertarians, and and if this is where the utopia would be, if there wouldn't be unions in the utopia, then we shouldn't work towards that. We should walk away from it. And I want to show that in a libertarian utopia there actually would be unions, so that libertarianism actually supports the idea of universal unionization. It doesn't uh, oppose it.
1: Now, you mentioned – it's a brilliant, brilliant uh, thought experiment – but you mentioned right libertarians – Uh, which suggests that there's such a thing as left libertarians. Uh, So what does it mean to be a left libertarian? Who are the primary thinkers in that sphere?
2: Right. Okay. So actually there's, in my view, three kinds of libertarians, Uh, right libertarians, left libertarians, and what I call faux libertarians. And uh, so let me tell you uh, how, how I distinguish between these groups. Now, most Most men on the street or women on the street who think of themselves as libertarians are really, in my view, faux libertarians. Faux libertarians, faux libertarianism is really just, in my view, an incoherent collection of biases and prejudices, where the argument from liberty is simply used to prevent you from doing things I don't like and to prevent you from stopping me to do things I want to do. Uh, There's really no principle that's uh, distinguishing those situations whatsoever, except some faux libertarians claim that what they're trying to do is maximize what Isaiah Berlin called negative liberty, our capacity to do things free from the interference of other human agents. And if you actually take that seriously, if you take the idea that what, what uh, this group of libertarians want to do is maximize negative liberty, you come up with, in my view, fascism because it means that you would have a society that has, some people have negative liberty to do anything they want and to prevent anybody else from doing anything. Some people have less. They can still prevent everybody below them from doing anything they don't want, but not the guy above them. And they would go down each level in like a pyramid structure. That's what fascism is. So I think that doesn't lead to a free society. It leads to a fascist society or if truly everybody can do everything they want then we have anarchism again which is which means that libertarianism collapses into anarchism which is exactly what we're trying to avoid and so a lot of libertarians are i think not not really to be taken seriously as a political theory although they have to be taken seriously as a movement because They're obviously very powerful now. Now, the difference is with right and left libertarians, they don't start with the idea of maximizing negative liberty. They start with the idea of self-ownership, that we own ourselves completely and fully, and that means no one owns us, and that because we own ourselves completely and fully, we own our labor, and then that has certain ramifications. So both right and left libertarians start with that idea of self-ownership, and from that idea... They think some interferences with negative liberty are impermissible. And on the other hand, some interferences with negative liberty are essential. That's why you can't kill me or steal my stuff or take my property or these various other things or enslave me. So both left and right libertarians start with that. The primary uh, left libertarianism draws on the same historical figures as right libertarians do, uh, but nobody, none of these historical figures called themselves libertarians, they called themselves liberals, but we draw on the same group of historical figures. And then towards the end of the last century, starting in about 1990 and probably going into maybe 2005, is what I'll call the sort of the first wave of left libertarians, where they start saying, oh, there's this different kind of libertarianism, it's called left libertarianism, and they distinguished themselves primarily on simply one point, which I can get into later when we talk about more than some of the more specific beliefs. But it was a very sort of limited distinction at that point. That's the initial wave, the formative wave of left libertarianism. And so I see myself as, as the sort of new wave, as leading the new wave of libertarianism. And so I've developed what was just one basis for distinction between right and left in, into a much fuller series of uh, distinctions that I think make left, libertarians a, left libertarianism a complete, full political theory on its own. And if you want, I can start, um, start talking about how those might differ.
1: Uh, yes, please do. Okay, so
2: let's focus on distributive justice here. So the libertarian structure for any libertarian theory of distributive justice has three principles. It has a principle of just initial acquisition, which is an account of how people come to justly own things when the world is just filled with natural resources. Then it has a principle of just transfer, how if you own something, you can transfer it justly to someone else and someone else can justly acquire it. And third, it has a principle of rectification, which says if you violate one of the previous two principles, this is what you do to correct it. So all libertarians accept that that's the structure of a theory of distributive justice, a libertarian theory of distributive justice. Uh, but right, and this is where right and left uh, libertarians uh, uh, split. So right libertarians start with the idea that in a state of nature, all resources are unowned, and so that if you mix your labor, with a resource. Since you own yourself, you own your labor fully and completely. So if you mix your labor with an unowned resource, you then come to own that resource. That's the right libertarian view. The left libertarian view is that in the state of nature, resources weren't unowned. They were jointly owned. In other words, everyone in the world has an interest in everything. And left libertarians agree that if you mix your your labor with these jointly owned resources in the state of nature. You do acquire an ownership interest in them, but it it means you also have to compensate the other joint owners because you've now taken exclusive control of something that was jointly owned. And you can see from that one difference that has a lot of ramifications, right? Because it means there's a lot of rectification that needs to be done for the seizure of indigenous people's lands, for um, all sorts of actions stemming from the state of nature, that now have led to extreme economic inequalities in income and wealth. And that's where the initial wave sort of focused and basically stopped. And so I've moved on from that, the first principle to the principle of transfer. And in my previous book on exploitation, I talked about what is essentially the left wing libertarian version of the principle of transfer. The right wing thinks that all that's required is voluntariness. So as long as the transfer is voluntary, it's just. And so in my previous book on exploitation, I argued that voluntariness is required. uh, So it's necessary, but it's not sufficient. We have to satisfy not only voluntariness, but reciprocity. In other words, a transfer has to, in some meaningful sense, be an exchange of equal value and so mere voluntariness is not enough and so again if you if you think about that that has a lot of ramifications for a right libertarian you know once you own something and if you don't have to pay compensation to anyone else and something can be voluntary well in in a sense all transactions are voluntary even the highwayman right who who says your money or your life You know, the person who gives up their money is giving it up voluntarily, right? They could have chosen to just be killed and refused. So voluntariness doesn't do a lot of work. And I think what does the work here is reciprocity. And if we do that, we can explain why exploitation is a violation of libertarian rights. And so that has huge ramifications as well. And then the third difference is about the principle of rectification, right? Even though right libertarians agree that almost everything in the world was not justly initially acquired. Nozick admits this in his book. Uh, he doesn't dispute that. Even though most right libertarians agree with that, however, it doesn't do anything for them. They just kind of said, well, OK, we'll just forget about that. And so it doesn't seem to generate any obligations to do anything about it so my criticism would be that they really just paid lip service to the principle of rectification i think and, and i again this is a basis for distinguishing left libertarians that if you're going to have a principle of rectification you have to take it seriously and so if there are violations you have to do something about that and so that leads that also has a a, a lot of ramifications at all it might require reparations of various kinds for all sorts of things for the seizure of indigenous lands for for years and years or centuries of exploitation, uh, there has to be compensation for. And so there's a great deal of work to be done if you're a libertarian, especially if you're a left libertarian, about putting society right because there's a lot of rectification required. So that gives us a basis for distinguishing left and right libertarianism on all three principles, not on one. And I, And I think you can see that leads to very different worlds. Indeed, I think if you're a left libertarian, you can get to the same place that most liberal egalitarians get to just by going in a different way. And so that's kind of the distinction in a nutshell.
1: Yeah. Now, as you were speaking, you know, I I think of myself as something of an Aristotelian Thomist. Uh, I work in Catholic social thought. And it seemed like some of the principles that you were mentioning had quite a bit in common with an Aristotelian or scholastic view. Uh, I mean, belief in uh, what later comes to be called the universal destination of goods. Focus on things like just price. I mean, the fundamental act of justice for for Aquinas is uh, restitution. I don't know. Do you see Do you see intersections with that with that school? I do. Um, I mean, I think Catholic social thought is one of the most
2: important sources for me. Uh, for example, my book on exploitation has a large portion of it dedicated to tracing the idea of the just price, which, as you said, comes from Aristotle, but was really developed by Aquinas, Duns Scotus, and the the schoolmen in some fascinating ways. So there are these tremendous historical roots, I think, for what what I'm now categorizing as left libertarian views, In Catholic social thought about economics, and 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 there really is something special about Catholic thought about economic justice. More than any other group of of thinkers who saw themselves as religious thinkers, Catholic thinkers have talked about economic justice. This has been a big issue, and it it hasn't been anywhere near the issue for other groups. They seem to think that this is just—it's not. I can't really explain why it hasn't been it's curious I don't I can't really explain why it isn't because it seems so obvious to me that it is and so I think Catholic social thought is 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 really important in that area as well
1: so the other thing that stands out to me is this notion of self ownership which um, at least some people might be worried about uh, seeing it as maybe a source of sort of possessive individualism that might fight against notions of obligation towards each other so How do you understand Uh, self-ownership to function?
2: Yes, I don't see those as being inconsistent at all. The idea that just because we're self-owners doesn't mean we have no obligations to anyone else. I don't see where that latter conclusion would would flow from the idea of self-ownership. Self-ownership means other people cannot own us. They cannot subject us to their arbitrary will they cannot dominate us in various ways they cannot treat us in an arbitrary fashion that to me is the essence of freedom and if you think of people having if you think of getting that what we call today republican liberty this idea of being free from domination free from arbitrary treatment that to me comes from self-ownership because you cannot be a self-owner if you're subject to that right if you're subject to arbitrary treatment so I think there's a direct connection between that, not being subject to arbitrary treatment, and then depending on how one cashes out the idea of when one is subject to arbitrary treatment. And I agree there are, there are different ways of doing that. But that, to me, leads to our obligations to others. And so I don't think those things are inconsistent. I think they, they're, they're not only are they consistent, they actually are derived from one another.
1: Fascinating. Thank you. Now, if we were to jump back to the, to the unions... What is the libertarian argument for unions? Okay, so remember that in the
2: libertarian utopia, people have certain, let's call them natural rights, right? And so we assume that, and then we say, okay, if everybody has these natural rights, rights against you know, murder, theft, fraud, stealing one another's property, things like that, would we have anything that would look like a state, And what Nozick argues is we would because people would, some people would be very good at enforcing their rights and some people would be not very good at it. And so what they realize over time is that, why should I enforce my rights? I'm not very good at it. I'm going to hire that guy who is very good at it. He's going to do it for me. And so little businesses would form, right? The rights enforces. And Nozick gives this whole story about how over time people who, we're good at this would become larger and larger. And that eventually in each geographic area, there would be what he calls the dominant protective association, right? The one that most people use to protect their rights. And then he explains, and that would cover most people, they would have just voluntarily joined. And then he has to explain, well, what do we do about the stragglers? There are some people left, he calls them independents. Can we compel them to join without violating their rights? And we have to be able to do this, you see, if we want to end up with something that looks like the modern state, because the modern state doesn't have independents wandering around. And so his argument is that being an independent is what he calls risky behavior. It puts everybody at risk because you can't be sure if you deal with an independent, whether they're going to respect the rulings of the dominant protective association, accept enforcement, accept the decision that enforcement is not due, et cetera. And so he says people can be, the stragglers, the independents, can be compelled to join. And once we do that, we have something that looks like a modern state. He says that because you can't be sure that an independent would have behaved wrongly, you also have to compensate them for the fact that they've been compelled to join and maybe they wouldn't have to do, do anything. But they're, they are compensated by the fact that they are, in turn, provided protective services. So compelling them to join doesn't just mean Uh, That they have to obey the decisions of the protective association. They actually get to take advantage of it for their own purposes. And so notice some connections here. So remember, I said that left libertarians believe that people need, uh, that if you mix your labor with unowned resources, you do own it, but you still owe compensation with people. And so there's the same idea here because in the case where an independent has been uh, required to join, he's being compensated. In the case where joint owners have lost their ownership interest, they would also be compensated. So it's the same kind of principle there that's that, that's at work. And the whole idea of compelling independence is at work. So, okay, so let's stop thinking about do we have something that looks like the state and think about would we have unions? Well, sure we'd have unions, right? Because people would realize as they're working in libertarian utopia that gee they 're not very good at you know negotiating their salaries. you know some people are good, some people aren't very good. the guy who's good well let's have him do it and in fact, they'd also realize that gee, if we bargained as a group, we'd do better and they'd also realize that. There's a kind of expertise involved here, a learning process in how to do this. The employer has this because the employer gets to negotiate time and time and time again with each, each employee. And an employee only does this maybe once, right? So there's no way to gather that expertise. So forming these associations, let's call them unions, would be something people would naturally want to do. And it's a libertarian utopia. So if they wanna do it, they should be able to do it unless it's a violation of anybody's libertarian rights. And what I argue then in the book is that there is no libertarian right that would be violated by forming a union, and therefore we would have unions just like we do in the real world, and unions would bargain with the employer for all sorts of things. Some would want provisions that say anybody you hired has to join the union, some wouldn't care about that, maybe they'd bargain that that away for something else, but you'd end up with heavily unionized society even if we were talking about a libertarian utopia and if that was false if my argument doesn't work i would argue that then the whole nozickian experiment doesn't work they both rise and fall together so we either have to have uh nozick's sort of whole thought experiment either has to produce uh something that looks like the modern state and has unions or it fails and that libertarianism is not despite what nozick and left libertarians claim is not an alternative to anarchism, not a distinctive political theory. So they have to rise and fall together. So that's the idea.
1: Excellent. Now, uh, you also describe unions as a basic institution. What's a basic institution and why does that matter? Okay. So the first essay in the book, as you pointed out, is aimed at libertarians,
2: right libertarians, primarily trying to show that the right libertarian argument does not support the idea that we shouldn't have unions. The second essay in the book is aimed at Rawlsians. So they're not starting with the same uh, presuppositions that libertarians start with, they start with different presuppositions. And one of those is is Rawls distinguishes between what he calls the basic structure of society and its basic institutions. And I sort of engage with Rawls discussion of that and I make I make some adjustments to the distinctions Rawls makes because I I think he kind of blurs the distinction between basic structure and basic institutions. So uh, in my view, the basic structure of society is the kinds of systems a society adopts. In other words, what economic system are you going to use? Are you going to use capitalism or socialism? What kind of legal system are you going to use? Are you going to use a common law system or are you going to use what we call a civil law system? What kind of political system are you going to use? Are you going to have democracy? Are you going to have dictatorship? Uh, are you going to have something in between? Those are, those are decisions about the basic structure of society, and there are a lot of choices in there. And in my view, they don't, those choices don't have particular moral content because it depends on, once you have the institutions, how you design them. They can be designed badly or well. And so what basic institutions do is they operationalize the basic structure. They provide what, uh, what I and other political theorists call background justice. They provide a structure within which we can work toward real justice. And real justice applies when we get to the outputs of basic institutions, right? Their decisions about what can happen or whether we create some other non-basic institution. But we can't do that all with post-institutional regulation. We have to create institutions that at least make it more likely that we can achieve this full justice. And so the basic institutions, they are designed to uh, achieve background justice. And so my argument is that unions are a basic institution because we have firms. Now remember, if we believe in the free market, right, if we're capitalists, we believe that uh, the price mechanism should establish how we distribute economic resources, uh, how we uh, set prices, and how we distribute resources. But the this free market is not an operation all the way down in a capitalistic system because firms don't operate that like that. They do not distribute resources within the firm based on the price mechanism. Firms are essentially mini socialist dictatorships. They operate by central planning. And there are lots of reasons, economic reasons, about why this is nevertheless a good idea, mostly because it saves transaction costs. We don't have to continuously be negotiating with people uh, to establish how we're going to do everything. As a firm, we have somebody in charge. He gets to direct that. And that's viewed to be more economically feasible. But as we all know, the employment relationship is a hotbed for acts of domination, right? No relationship outside of perhaps, well, no relationship really, I think, is as fraught with opportunities for domination as the employment relationship. So going with firms, which is a exception to this, our general embrace of capitalism, puts people's Republican liberty at risk because it subjects them to a big risk of domination. Now, how do we deal with that risk? Well, We could rely on post-institutional regulation. You can't do this, you can't do that. But as we can all see, simply having lots of detailed post-institutional regulation where we then resort to the courts every time we think there's been a violation, well, that's very expensive, it's very time-consuming, it's very clumsy, and as a practical matter, it's just not going to be useful on sort of the day-to-day level which means we have to have some institutional countermeasure there to protect republican liberty not simply rely on post-institutional regulation and that countermeasure is unions because if we have unions at least we have that's the mere existence of the union and the various apparatus it supplies for ensuring that employees are not exploited will do a lot of the work and then we can leave the legal system to what it's intended for, the really big issues. Now, of course, they're not going to be perfect. There are going to be some things that don't get done, but they don't have to be. Uh, no basic institution is perfect. Firms are not perfect, right? Some firms are, are corrupt. Uh, they commit fraud. They do all sorts of things. So we shouldn't expect unions to be any better than firms. They should be just the same as firms. And yet if we have this institutional countermeasure built in, where at least we've at least done something to establish background justice, we've made the the sort of general set of relationships, at least in a position that we're more likely to make fully just than if that basic institution was not there. And so that's, in my view, the argument for why unions have to be a basic institution. They have to be a basic institution because once we pick firms as a basic institution, they need a counterweight and unions are that counterweight.
1: Excellent. Excellent. Now, a lot of this, uh, a lot of your theorizing depends a lot on balancing power. And now somebody else could approach the thing and say, well, what we really need are a list of, of uh, rights and duties for these organizations. It's your legal experience partly what's driving this need to uh, ensure uh, the threat of opposing force? Well,
2: yes, I think that's probably a good observation. Yes, it is. I mean, you have to have some structural balance for opportunities for injustice. You have to build in some structures that then allows you, by giving contact to those structures, to actually give us full justice. But without those structures, you're never going to get anywhere near close to full justice. And so, Sure, we can have rights and duties, but then the question is, how do we enforce them? That was my first book, was about enforceability. And uh, being a lawyer for a lot of years, I got to see that there were lots of rules on the books that simply are not enforceable in any practical sense, and therefore they don't really do anything. So you can't simply look towards the legal system and having a system of rights and duties to give you full justice. You have to build structures in. Uh, that enable that. Otherwise, we wouldn't need a legal system, right? We would just decide what people's rights and duties are, and we would just assume everybody would always comply with them. And if we were different kinds of beings, maybe we would always comply with them. But that's not what human beings are like. And so we need some ability to make these things matter on the practical level, and not just on the sort of grand theory level. And unions help us do that.
1: One of the common objections uh, people will make when we start saying, oh, unions are important... Uh, is uh, They'll say, well, except public unions, right, because this is an opportunity for corruption. Uh, now why aren't, in your view, public unions the exception to the rule? Okay, so this is the third essay in the book. The first one is about the libertarian argument. The second
2: one is the, the Rawlsian argument. And the third one says, does all that prior stuff apply to public unions or are public unions different for some reason? Well, of course, in, in, in almost all of the rest of the world outside of America, there really is no distinction between private and public unions. People find it difficult even just to get their head around that. And so what my third essay does is is talk about whether the differences between private and public unions are of such significance that different rules should apply. And of course, there are some differences, right? Public entities are not firms in the sense that private firms are they are with a few exceptions not designed to make a profit and so one of the things i discuss in that third essay is whether that changes the motivation for exploitation in public firms or public entities and i think it doesn't right because even though public entities are not designed to make a profit there's tremendous pressure on public entities to cut costs right because They look better if they cut costs. Taxes don't need to be as high. So there's that same incentive is there. Managers who are successful in cutting costs will often be promoted or be able to run for political office. So they have the same incentive, really, to exploit workers that private firms do. So I think the reasons why we need unionization in the private sector still apply in the public sector. Now, one of the things you mentioned is one of the arguments... One of the principal arguments really made against unions in the public sector, which essentially goes, okay, even if that's all true, even if the incentives are here, that would still put Republican liberty at risk in the public center. What about this? Isn't it anti-democratic? Public unions have too much power. Uh, They can be corrupted. But there really isn't a lot of evidence of this. There was a time where where unions, mostly in the private sector, were corrupt. But corruption in the public sector has always been fairly limited, and we've got corruption in the private sector now fairly under control, I would say that's a post-institutional problem. We have to keep monitoring this, but it's not something that justifies simply throwing out the institution for the same reason that just because we have a lot of evidence that firms are corrupt, and there's tons of evidence that firms are corrupt and do antisocial things, no one suggests, well, we should just get rid of the firm as a basic institution. Those are just simply things that need to be handled in post-institutional regulation. And the anti-democratic argument has a lot of aspects to it, which I, I separate out and address separately in the book. But I think basically it doesn't work. This idea that unions are going to get benefits merely because they will give political support to people. Well, we can see that doesn't work, right? I mean, we can see with all the anti-union legislation that's been passed, if that were true, it wouldn't have been passed. Unions have some political influence. But what that does is it simply is like any other association of, of potential voters Uh, They have political influence, and we don't think that that's wrong in any other aspect of our lives. So I don't think the argument that they're anti-democratic really holds water because the people who make that argument won't apply it to all sorts of other things that have the same kind of what they call improper influence.
1: You very briefly treat police unions in the book, but uh, given a lot of the debates going on right now, uh, this is a really hot button issue. Right. Uh, A lot of people are worried about police unions uh, potentially uh, offering undue protection to guilty officers who need to be removed. Uh, Could you speak to that issue?
2: Yes. Okay. so I think I do discuss police unions in the book and I, I, I note that they often are blamed for being impediments to reform. And so I think here's the way to think about that. Some police unions are impediments to, uh, to reform, not all police unions. In California, for example, most of the unions were appalled by the George Floyd incident and came out in support of all the various proposals that were being made to prevent that. Um, so it's not true of all police unions. It is true of some, but let's think about why that's true of some. I mean, those unions represent their members and to the extent they're opposed to reform or are racist, they are that way because a lot of their members are opposed to reform or racist and so the solution to that problem is not to get rid of unions but to leave all the racist officers in place the solution is to do more to ensure that the police are not uh, violent sociopaths and racist then when we've done that their unions will be very productive just like anywhere else And I I think a lot of this effort to blame police unions is really an effort by politicians to shift the blame for themselves, right? They say, well, I couldn't institute reforms because the police union wouldn't let me. If that were true, the world would be a very different place because that would be saying, well, unions are so powerful, they don't want it, it's not going to happen. Well, look at the world. That's one of the very few examples of where it looks like union resistance has uh, helped uh, stamp out re- reform. So I think it's mostly just politicians trying to blame somebody else for their own unwillingness to take effective action. So I I, I don't think the problem is police unions. In other words, the solution to, to racism in the police is not to get rid of police unions, it's to get rid of racist police. And that's a political issue. And that police unions do not have the kind of power that people who really want to deal with this issue will be prevented from doing so.
1: Now, this may be changing in light of uh, COVID, uh, but I mean, for the last uh, few—I mean, even a couple hundred years—the uh, world's been shrinking, uh, globalization. How does your book deal with that? Yes, so that has been a problem, and and so one of the arguments.
2: I address in the book is, uh, you know, I argue for universal unionization. And so one of the arguments that could be made against me was, well, all well, the people just will all move abroad, right? Because they'll go to countries that don't have unionization, so workers don't get paid as much. And so how can you how can you go universal in one country unless everybody goes universal? And since everybody's not going to do that, at least certainly not at the same time, how can you do this? Well, what I talk about in the book is that Uh, If you combine the idea of universal unionization with some of the ideas in my prior books about what constitutes exploitation, you can prevent this. So if a job is shifted overseas because it can be done cheaper there because living standards are lower, that's a valid economic reason to shift it overseas. But if the reason it can be done cheaper over there is because they don't have unions because they don't have uh, laws against pollution or minimum wage in hours or all these other kinds of things, or even uh, uh, laws against child labor, things that would be a violation in our country, those are costs of production. They're just not borne by the company. They're borne by the people who suffer as a result of them. And so if we accept my, my definition of exploitation, when those goods got here and were sold cheaper, they, uh, people who, uh, that the price would be too low. And, uh, what I propose is that people who are exploited by that kind of production could sue in the U.S. courts to recover damages for being exploited. Now, I get this from an area of the law called products liability. So remember in the 60s, there was a ra- uh, there was a, uh, a series of cases about whether manufacturers should be liable when their products caused injury. And uh, it was controversial for a while. Now it's become very accepted. And this was done through the courts. There was no legislation initially about this or not. But the fear of lawsuits stopped companies from making defective products, or at least it gave them an incentive to be much more careful when they were building things that they wouldn't cause injury. And so I think the same thing would happen with unionization. If we allowed people who are injured by this to sue, that would lead lead companies to avoid the behavior which led to that liability. And so even though they could build products abroad for less using non-union labor, if people could sue when they did that, if the... If the price didn't affect, didn't uh, reflect the actual social cost of making those goods overseas, they would stop doing it. And so if we actually did that, we wouldn't have to worry that the whole world wasn't going in the same direction at once. And so I don't think globalization would be as much of a problem as it is. Now, of course, you're right, given the pandemic pandemic. I mean, the world doesn't seem to be getting smaller now. You know, from, from my perspective, Europe has never seemed so far away. I mean, we can't even fly to Europe now, even if we wanted to. So I think we're going to see a lot of repatriation of jobs because people are going to realize that the risks of having all our supply chains overseas has a cost to production. And that means that the cost savings is not is not worth it because they're going to lose out when they can no longer get supplies. And the public is going to be willing to pay more to have things that are really important made locally so that they can be sure in an emergency that they can find stuff. And so I think that's going to really help the argument for, well, for both preventing jobs from going overseas and for showing that unionization here is not going to hurt us even if other places aren't as unionized. And of course, most other places are as unionized as we are or more or more so, at least most places in the developed world. So globalization is a concern, but it's not something that can't be dealt with.
1: Excellent. Now, one of the things that popped into my head as I started to read this book, you know, I I saw universal unionization and I thought, hey, maybe this is some kind of return to the pre-modern guild system. Uh, And yet, you know, I read very clearly you state, no, this is not, you were were very clear. It's not, you're not advocating a return to the pre-modern guilds, uh, which some people at least will see as would see as a precursor to contemporary unions. Uh, Why not? What's wrong with the guilds that you don't want? Well, because the guilds
2: were really different institutions. The guilds controlled production pricing decisions. They controlled a lot of the things that under capitalism, we have the firm control. Uh, Or the market control. And so the movement against the guild system was to To remove these kinds of limitations, which were very inefficient. They kept prices high. They kept workers out of particular fields. And so the price for labor was high. They were really the primary decision making bodies of how the economy worked. Now, this would not be true under my proposal for universal unionization because I am not arguing that unions should have the power to decide who gets hired. That's what happens with what is called union shops, excuse me, closed shops. What I'm arguing for is union shops. Union shops simply have a provision in the contract that says when the employer hires somebody and the employer can hire whoever it wants to, that person automatically becomes a member of the union. And so the unions can't control who gets hired. You don't have to be a member of the union to get hired. The unions don't set the price of the goods that the uh, employer produces. And they don't even set their own wages. They simply bargain with the employer for whatever wages they think they deserve. And of course, since they're trying to bargain in the interest of their members, they have an incentive to be reasonable. If a union gets such a high wage that the employer is going to go out of business and all the people lose their jobs, that's not going to be very good for the union. So the unions have a sort of top above which they will not go because they're not going to want to put people out of work. The employer still has to make a profit. And so they're concerned about that. But if you look at the other side of the the coin, employers don't have any floor beneath which they will not go, right? Because the cheaper the employer can get his labor for the more he can exploit them the more profit he makes or at least this is what most employer thinks and so and because there seem to be an inexhaustible supply an army of workers out there that's always available and somebody will always work for less employers have a tremendous incentive to drive wages and benefits down as low as they possibly can to just above slavery, whereas unions don't have the incentive to go in the other direction. And so we end up, again, I think, with, we end up with a system that, unlike the guild system, responds to actual economic conditions if we have unions, where it doesn't if we don't have unions. Uh, one, of, one of the uh, There's an article out in the New Yorker just the other day by uh, Jane Mayer about chicken plants, and how the chicken industry has made phenomenal profits recently and yet wages keep going down and i think this is an example of how with and and most of the chicken industry is ununionized if we have non-unionized workers where they're subject to this kind of exploitation and in the few chicken plants that are unionized they're still not making a lot of money and the plant is still making plenty of profit it's just not making quite as much as it is in the unionized plants So I don't think my proposal would lead to a return of the guild system, and I wouldn't want it to. And I think it's designed to be sure that doesn't happen.
1: Excellent. Now, it seems like a few times already you've made reference to earlier books. Uh, A lot of your books seem like they, they cohere very tightly. Is there a trajectory that your work is following? I think there is. You know,
2: it's it's something that sort of unfolds as I go along and that I'm not sure I could have said way back when when I when I first started writing these that this is what the overall objective is. But um, I can see some of that now. So one of the things I hope to ultimately produce is a book which sort of I've, I've tentatively titled Some Principles of Normative Political Economy. And this is a book like, you know, Mill's book on political economy. Henry Sidrick has a book on political economy. A lot of the thinkers from, uh, you know, before the 19th, uh, before the 20th century did these whole books about political economy. And that's sort of what I I envision sort of a general project I'm working on now. And I've got uh, my book on exploitation as one part of that, my book on unemployment as another part of that. Now the book on unionization, is another part of that there are various other segments of that i want to do one on agriculture the justice uh philosophies of justice for agriculture i want to do one on the battle between the young and the old on economic contraction on principles of mobility economic mobility and all of those would be part of this general project on normative principles of political economy in that sense now the book I'm working on now and my first book are a little different. My first book was on enforceability, but that, oddly enough, has has been a lot uh, provided a lot of sources for for work in uh, on political economy as well. So I don't see that as completely separate. And my my current book is it's called "The Unbearable Resilience of Illiberalism," and it's about the rise of Trumpism, uh, populism, and the alt right. And although it's not about economic justice alone, that's a part of it. Because I think the the huge rise in economic injustice over the last three decades or so or longer has been one of the matches that have lit the sort of populist movement on fire. And so they're related in that sense. But it also takes those economic issues further and relates those to how more general uh, questions of, of political morality get decided. So that's kind of the overall vision of, uh, of my work in the, as it goes now. And we'll see how, if I live long enough, maybe I'll actually be able to get through all that stuff. I don't know.
1: Let's hope. Make sure you uh, social distance. Now, one of the things that, that I've, I've often wondered in reading your work, your work has a thrust, right? And so I've wondered about what, in in your view, is this relationship between uh, theory and politics, or we might say scholarship and advocacy, uh, philosophy and action. How do you understand what it is that you're doing when you're writing? I think economic justice is about making our lives better, and it
2: should be about making our lives better now, or at least offer feasible suggestions about how we can improve things. And so what I what I try to stay away from is what's now called in political philosophy ideal theory, theory that's just if we were going to redesign the world and society from scratch, how would we do things? Because those often seem to me incredibly utopian. Now, sometimes talking about ideal theory is useful because it tells us important things about the way things are now. But if you're so removed from where things are going and so your theory has no clear practical ramifications, I, I don't know why you're doing this. I, I once had a, a, a guy who was uh, I guess he was chair of the um, philosophy department and I was talking about this idea and he was saying, you know, Mark, none of the stuff we do will have any impact on the real world. And I was just kind of stunned at that because I I, I couldn't imagine why we would want to do it in that (laughs) age. What's the point? It's just philosophical train spotting in that in that situation. It's kind of a uh, completely irrelevant activity, you know, obsessively pursued. So I, I really try in all my work to always connect the theoretical discussions I'm um, going over to actual practical matters and show how there are examples of these things in motion, how we can implement these things, and that if a theory is simply unfeasible or not addressing the real problems of society, then we shouldn't be doing it. Or at least, maybe that's too broad a statement, some people can be doing that, it's fine if some people want to do it, but we all shouldn't be doing it. That's a mistake. And what worries me now is most of us, maybe even the overwhelming majority of political philosophers, are doing that kind of theory that is completely divorced from the real world. And that's not doing anybody
1: any good. Agreed. Now, I always ask this one question uh, that I think is really helpful uh, for us. Aside from your own work, What are the most exciting developments at the intersection of ethics, economics, and politics? Or uh, another way to say this is, who should I be reading? Okay, so that's a hard question to answer. And here's the reason. I do think
2: we are now in a period of intellectual stagnation. I think that exciting work in political theory is uh, rare indeed now, and that we still spend most of our time tweaking theories from the 1970s and the 80s. And this is a serious problem in political philosophy. There are all sorts of reasons why that's the case. I discussed that in a couple of other papers. But I do think we're in a a period of intellectual stagnation now. There are a few exceptions to that, who I will mention in a second. And I do think the idea of combining politics, philosophy, and economics is a step in the right direction, right? It's a claim that there's, there are these issues that cut across all these uh, disciplines, which I think is actually true, and <laughs> that this is a place where exciting work can be done. And I think that's all true. The problem is there is very little political philosophy coming out of that combination that's on the left. What, as a practical matter, it has turned out to be is a sort of vehicle for those on the right to generate um, more philosophy on why we should do what the right wants us to do. So most of it is anti-egalitarian, even though it's sometimes dressed up as being egalitarian. It's dominated by economists, even though economists don't have training in doing political theory and are mostly completely oblivious to the history of political philosophy. And so while that, that interdisciplinary work has been producing a lot of right-wing work. It's, in my view, producing very little or no left-wing work. So that's been very disturbing. Now, there are a few exceptions to this. Lisa Herzog is, is one of them. She's German. She's been writing some really interesting stuff. She's very productive. Peter Dietsch is another. He's also actually German, although he teaches in Canada. Uh, he writes in English, teaches in French, and is a native German, so very impressive guy. But he also uh, writes about these issues. He he writes about tax competition, which I, again is a an important issue with practical ramifications, and he addresses it on a on a theoretical basis. And out of Europe, there are a lot more younger scholars coming out with work that I think eventually. They will develop into books and be, and become important, but sort of my generation in terms of age now is has really I think dropped the ball. They're really not generating anything important. They are simply tweaking the work of their mentors, and they seem very upset among my generation now and uh, sort of the middle generation they uh people seem absolutely determined to never say anything. That could possibly have any effect in the real world because it's controversial, and the whole idea now is everybody has to get along with everybody else. That's the most important thing. Everybody needs needs to be treated as simply, you know, having you know any opinion is as good as any other. And I think in the area of political philosophy, that's not a good approach. And in one of my papers, I say, in political philosophy, you should despise other people's ideas, right? Because These are important things. And people who are arguing for things that you find oppressive, you should really make clear how dangerous those kinds of thoughts are. Now, that doesn't mean treating people without respect. You can treat people with respect and still despise your ideas. But this idea that we have to be not confrontational, not uh, everybody has to get along, uh, everybody has to be able to go to a backyard barbecue, and uh, talk to one another, I think is really preventing the growth, of the political theory. It's, it's, ma- it's, it's forcing people to be inoffensive and uncontroversial. Everything is homogenous. And I think that's a real problem in the field. So I don't think there are a lot of signs for hope yet in the field, but there are, there are some, mostly coming out of Europe, mostly among the young, and people like Lisa and Peter.
1: Excellent. Well, I I look forward to delving into their work. And I'm really grateful that you could be with us here today. Thanks, Mark. Yeah, this is great, John. Thanks so much for having me.
0: Thanks for listening. If you appreciated this episode, please rate and review us on your podcast platform of choice. We love to hear from listeners. Chat with us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. You can also learn more about our programming at BeatriceInstitute.org. That's Beatrice Institute, all one word, .org. And if you are a university student or a faculty member in Pittsburgh and would like to be involved locally, check out our Fellows Program and get in touch. This episode was mixed and mastered by Yellow Music and Sound. Until next time, I'm Ryan McDermott. Go with God.